Well, open your Bibles back to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 5. We've been out of Ecclesiastes for a few weeks now, and uh, the nature of what's been going on on Sunday nights has uh, kind of bumped us around in this book, but I think you'll find that tonight's passage is of particular relevance and has a unique focus for us even as we sit here this evening. I've entitled this sermon, Watch Your Steps in the House of God. The director of Global Impact, Monty Wilson, has said this a few years ago. Evangelical worship is becoming an oxymoron. Interesting. Our songs are either belted out on the same mindless intensity with which we sing our football team's fight song, or we are crooning romantic ditties that would be more at home in an old 1930s B-movie. Irreverence has become so rampant that in our worship services, one would not be shocked to hear our deacons walking up and down the aisle yelling, popcorn, peanuts, sacraments. He goes on to say, there are many reasons for the denigration of worship in modern evangelical churchville. There's the dumbing down effect of public education, 150 years of revivalism that, armed with songs geared toward working up the masses, approaches the churches solely as an evangelistic crusade and drive to compete with MTV as being relevant, i.e., more like the world, thereby pleasing the taste of the congregation. Each of these dynamics perverts our ability to appreciate the that any music that is not simplistic, that any music that is simplistic and not emotionally intense is problematic. All of this together erects almost an insurmountable barrier that we must overcome if we are to truly worship the Lord, end quote. I understand what he's saying. I, uh, I feel like the, the older I get and the more I I do ministry, and the longer that I serve as a pastor and the long, longer I serve as your pastor, I just feel more and more like a dinosaur. I feel like we do such simplistic things that we're, we're not very attractive in, in terms of what the world might want to come in and, and be attracted to. And Sometimes that's, that's tough to kind of swallow. You, you want people to come in and say, uh, what a God. Sometimes you want people to say, what a service. Certainly you want people to say, what a building, what a this, what a that. And there are elements of the excellence of God that I understand come along with that, but really you want them to say, what a God. What, what are we doing here, and why are we in this place? There has become such irreverence and casualness in most churches today that it's easy to forget that the omnipotent, divine, sovereign God is present and to be reckoned with when we come into his presence together. The problem is that the church has become a sort of cornucopia of stuff. It's become a place to get stuff, to see stuff, to watch stuff, even a place to do stuff, for our kids to have stuff and do stuff. Now, there may be a place for each of these categories, and certainly there is, but more than all that, it's a place to come and be with God and be with God's people. But the Bible, and particularly the book of Ecclesiastes, purports that it's primarily a place to meet with the divine sovereign who calls us together. A little background, we've been looking at Ecclesiastes, the first four chapters have been reflections on the vanity of life. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, and that word hebel, the word vanity means, 
means temporary, steam off a cup of coffee. It's there for a moment, then it's gone. It's not that this world doesn't offer satisfying uh, offerings. It's, it's that they don't last. They're there for a moment, and they're gone. So the first four chapters describes that, and then has us wrestle along with Solomon with graphic detail on the emptiness of life under the sun. And where we find ourselves in the study uh, here in chapter 5, there's a, a massive and a radical change of tone. Chapter 5 reveals a significant shift in the book of Ecclesiastes from reflection to instruction. It's almost like the introduction is over and now he's going to tell us what to do. You find the imperatives start picking up. Do this, don't do that. Second person plural is used. You, or as we say grammatically correct in the South, y'all. And the cause of this change is the subject matter that began in the middle of chapter 3, which is this. The world is irreparably broken. It doesn't take a genius to figure that out. All you need to do is watch the news or live a day in this world, and you will know that the world is broken. A good look at it is enough to cause anyone to ask why and what am I to do about that. But Solomon's reflection is even more intense because this broken world is ruled, interestingly enough, by a sovereign, good, gracious God who has not relinquished control, is still in sovereign control, even though Ephesians tells us that the prince of the power of the air does have sway over this planet. But God has not let his hands go from the handlebars of the universe. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 15, God says through Solomon, there's a time for everything, everything in its place. We looked in detail at that. And the place to go to sort all of these issues out is with God, and the place that God has outlined for us to come and get instruction and perspective is with his people in the New Testament in his church, in the Older Testament, at the temple. Let me read the first seven verses of Ecclesiastes 5 with that as a background. Solomon says, guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they're doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God, for God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few." For the dream comes through much effort, and the voice of a fool through many words. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin, and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For in many dreams and in many words, there is vanity or emptiness. Rather, fear God. Interesting text, isn't it? What does that have to do with you and me in this century? This is talking about one's attitude before God as we come to a place of worship. It's imperative that we come to God for a breath of heaven's air or we will likely suffocate in the toxicity of this world's sin. Solomon, let's be very clear, is describing temple worship. 
He's describing what it means to come into the presence of God. Read through the Psalms, the Psalms of Ascent, as you're coming into the presence of God or to prepare us to have the right kind of attitude is to avoid what Solomon is discussing here in the Psalms of Ascent that were just be spoken and sung as you were walking up the stairs on your way to, to meet with the Almighty. It's in the late 90s, 95 or so through the early 100s in the Psalms. But let me say this. We're talking about a temple here and we're talking about the Older Testament but the principles of a group of people who God has redeemed to come together to meet with him definitely come over the, the, uh, the gap between the Older and Newer Testaments. These principles are still the same. God is still the same one who looks to be worshipped. And I think we can learn a lot from what Solomon has instructed here. And these young people, remember he's talking to a group of young people on how to get life right. Now, the passage is echoed in the New Testament in so many places, 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, having order in the church services, Hebrews 10, where there's order and reverence in the house of God, the church. So in keeping with that, I think we can heed the same instructions that Solomon gives here in the 10th century B.C. We can look at it this way. God has, has not changed addresses from the Old to the New Testament, but he has changed the locks. The only key that opens a door for genuine worship this side of the cross is faith in Jesus. And after four chapters of telling us how broken the world is, Solomon is now going to tell us how to gain our perspective, how to get it right, where to go to get that perspective, to be with God and his people. For him, it was the temple, and for us, it's the church. Please don't misunderstand. I am not saying that the church is the modern temple. I'm not being covenantal in what I say that. What I'm saying is the principles that Solomon uses here are the same principles that we should imply and apply in our own life. So, as we're going to look at this, I want to notice with you five critical instructions for meeting with God. Five critical instructions for meeting with God. These were the same for Solomon, and those are certainly the same principles that you and I can apply. I want to encourage you. These are things that you can talk about with your family. These are things you can talk about and pray about on your way to church, in the, in the car, uh, at breakfast. Things you can talk about in the afternoon. Things you can talk about on Saturday night. This is Solomon pulling us in as an old wise man saying, I have made so many mistakes. Please learn from my mistakes so you don't have to make your own. We can listen from him and listen to his wisdom. So the first of these instructions is real simple. Prepare a cautious attitude. Be cautious. Prepare a cautious attitude. Look in the first part of verse 1. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God. First of all, we're talking about the house of God. Jesus himself called the temple God's house, my father's house specifically. So we know he's talking about temple worship. He's saying, guard your steps. Watch out. You are about to take a risk. Be alert. Listen carefully. In other words, coming into God's presence with God's people is a very serious endeavor. I'm going to be honest. I I know how easy it is because of the roteness of my own Sunday mornings. You preach twice, you go in between the services, you do this, you do I got to get this. and that. There's just a roteness about it that it's easy for me to remember or forget rather that I need to guard my steps. To take a deep breath, to slow down, to 
to be cautious. Guard your steps. Which is the same way of saying, step carefully as you go into the house of God. Steps is interesting. It's talking about feet. Feet are often used in the Bible as a personification of the way you live, the way you act, human conduct. We're told that our feet can even lead us astray. Proverbs 1.5, my son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their path, for their feet run to evil. They hasten to shed blood. Proverbs 4.27, do not turn to the right nor to the left nor turn your, or, and turn your foot from evil. Proverbs 19.2, also it is good for a person to be without knowledge and he who makes haste with his feet errs. I think I said that wrong. It is not good for a person to be without knowledge and he who makes haste with his feet errs. In other words, you run, you, you, you act, you live in a way that looks toward and leans toward evil. Your feet can actually lead you in the right direction. Your steps can. Job 23, 11, My foot has held fast to God's path. I have kept his way and not turned aside. So this idea of walking, walking with the righteous, walking in the way of, of God, Psalm 1, not walking in the way of the wicked, this has to do with living of, of your perspective. And the idea is that we're to look out for ourselves, to walk carefully and specifically here, to walk carefully as we come to worship. For Solomon, it was the temple, the house of God. That's where he met God. And for us, it's here in our church, in the quiet places even of our devotional exercises. I think it applies. In your car, in your house, in your apartment, in your dorm room, the reality is that Christ has provided us with unlimited access to the throne of grace, and he's saying, don't rush in there too hastily without coming cautiously. But let me speak specifically to the issue of our attitude in coming to church on Sundays. Do you come deliberately with the right attitude? I don't know about you, but it feels like that most of the attacks of the devil are aimed at my house or in my car on Sunday morning. It seems if it can go wrong, it will go wrong on Sunday morning. I don't think that's an accident. That's why I keep telling you, Sunday morning begins Saturday night. you got to get ready for it. You have to be ready. It takes deliberate preparation. Church is not something we just get up and flippantly go to. This is something that Solomon says to come to worship God is serious enough to make preparation for and the benefits are immeasurable. Remember Asaph in Psalm 73? He was looking at the wicked and saying, why do, all, why do the bad guys win and the good guys lose? Why do the bad guys get all the stuff? The sinners prosper and it looks like the righteous falter. Why does that happen? And he was in despair. And then Psalm 73, 16 says, When I pondered to understand this, that the bad guys win and the good guys lose, that the godly people are in trouble and... The worldly people seem to be excelling. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. You know what he's saying? I realized when I came to the house of God, what eternity holds. It was an eternally perspective, a perspective that was altered by eternal realities. Do we come into God's presence seeking to have our perspective altered or changed by God, by his truth? 
Is there an expectation in your heart that, that you're going to hear from God when you come to church? Are we flippant, carefree, not reflective? He says, make sure that you're seeking God in His house. Guard your steps. Make sure that your attitude is a right attitude. It almost seems embarrassing to say this. Church is about God. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about our children. It's not about our programs. Church is a magnet that God pulls us to himself with other people so that we can have a ministry with each other, on each other, and worship God together. It's an appointment with God, an encounter with deity. Church is not a social alternative to the world. It's not a, it's not a singles bar. It's not a pickup joint. It's not a fashion show. It's not a social club. And all of us have to be careful or we can treat church like that. Hebrews 4 verse 14 says, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things like us, yet without sin. Let us therefore, because we have such a great high priest, Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And then you know Hebrews 10, 19 very well, right? It's probably already rattling around in your mind as we're hearing Solomon speak. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, since, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, this is such an incredible transition. Because he talks about the temple worship, but he transitions from the temple worship and says, we have better than the temple worship because they had to stop at different barriers that kept the presence of God away from the people. We can barge right into the Holy of Holies. When Jesus was crucified, that great four-inch thick piece of curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple was torn in two from where to where. From top to bottom. It was divinely shredded. And you know what was put in this place? In fact, you can say that that tent that separated was torn down and turned into a welcome mat to come into his presence. That's what this talks about. Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through his veil, that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God... Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Did you hear that? We come with a sincere heart. We're prepared. We're coming in true approach to worship. A sincere heart, a full assurance of faith. And our hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. We've dealt with our body to make it our slave. In other words, we've come exactly the way Trevor led us in the Lord's table now. We've come ready, not because we've become perfect, but because we realize our imperfections and have applied the gospel to not only understand our forgiveness, but our motivation now to repent from those things. It's a prepared approach. He goes on, 
<clears throat> let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. You come to church as preachers, as leaders. Let us know how to stimulate one another in love and good deeds. You come as a minister of the gospel of mercy and grace in one another's lives to motivate each other. All of our time in the atrium out there, all of our time standing around in here is to be encouraging toward the Lord. It has a spiritual purpose. Then he says, not forsaking our own assembling together. And then <laughs> there was a problem in the first century just like there is here in the time in which we live. Not forsaking our own assembling together. And then he says this, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Be prepared. Come with a cautious attitude. Come with a deliberate and a prepared attitude. That's the first preparation to make. Number two, open a listening ear. Open a listening ear. Look at the rest of verse one. And draw near to listen <clears throat> rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools for they do not know they are doing evil. When, when you see a contrast here, the contrast in, in any, in any uh, passage, even when we're talking, the contrast typically informs what's being contrasted. Look at what's said here. Draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. So whatever the sacrifice of fools is, there's a lot of debate about what it is, but I know this. Whatever it is, it's not listening, which means it's probably talking. He's going to come back to that in the next two verses. It's coming to speak and to be heard rather than to hear God. Now, listen, there's, let me qualify that. If you're coming to teach a Sunday school class, please come to be heard. Please come to prepared. You should come to be heard. But we all ought to come to listen. That's why we're Mission Road. What's the next word? Bible Church. We, we, we believe that our whole lives are regulated by this book. That we come with each other to God's house to church, to hear God, to listen to God. He's spoken. The preacher here in Ecclesiastes 5 tells us to come to listen for the word of God and to obey. It's not a novel thought. First Samuel 15, 22, Samuel says, has the, Lord, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. In other words, to hear what God wants us to do and to do it is better than anything we would offer. Proverbs 15, 8, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the, right, of the upright is his delight. Proverbs 21, 27, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with evil intent? The point is simple. God wants quiet attention over loud religiosity. I think sometimes we would all do better to speak less and to listen more. How do you open a listening ear specifically though? Come with this open ear, this listening ear. Be ready to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Well, without being 
trivial. I think part of that is bring your Bible. If this is where God's spoken, you should bring it. One of the things that I was so encouraged by, we had a guest here a few months ago, and I was so encouraged, maybe a bit of spiritual pride, but sitting here on the front row about where Aaron was, and afterwards he said, you know what I was so encouraged by is when you said take your Bibles and turn to Romans whatever, said the sound of the pages turning in that building was deafening. That's so encouraging. Bring your Bible. If we're going to hear God's word, there's a reason, by the way, that I don't put text of Scripture up on, on the screen. I want you to look at it in your own book, in your own Bible. We can make a real clear, cool PowerPoint where you would never have to bring your Bible. Uh, I remember we went to one mega church in Southern California, not Grace Community Church, by the way. Um, I remember we went as a staff, Kim, and, uh, and we walked into this big, uh, big, massive church, and we were the only ones with a Bible. I've never felt awkward with a Bible in church except that morning. That was actually a Saturday night. It was a Saturday night service. And I'm like, well, I mean, this is, I guess this is church. Well, I have this book. And, and the reason is every one of the scriptures were, were projected. So maybe I'm a dinosaur, but bring your own Bible. Look at it in your Bible. You know why? I want you to see it there and then to take it away with you and read it somewhere else. So you understand this is... I see it in my own Bible. We don't want to go back to the Middle Ages where the priest held sway over the people because they didn't have access to God's Word and could say that God said anything that he wanted to say. I love the fact that whether it's me or whoever stands in this pulpit is held to a very high standard because you're looking at what I'm saying God said and saying, did God really say that? That's a high standard. Bring your Bible, take notes, review what you learn with someone who cares Ask God every time you approach him to speak to you through his word. Do you pray regularly, God, speak to me through your word? Don't offer the sacrifice of fools, which means to not listen and just to offer your own opinion, your own thoughts. They don't even know that what they're doing is evil. It's evil in God's sight. Open a listening Ear. Number three, secure a submissive bias or perspective. Secure in your own heart submission, a submissive perspective, a submissive disposition, a submissive bias. Verse two, do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought. This fleshes out what it means to offer the sacrifice of a fool. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Now, what, what is this talking about? I thought we can bring all of our, our prayers to God, that he's welcoming anything that we have. With all prayer and supplica- supplication, make your requests be made known to God. Is he saying, no, no, don't, don't do that? Not at all. There are six objections to God's sovereignty in, that, that uh, Solomon has dealt with in the preceding chapter. And these would be reason to barge in to the house of God and say, wait, God, I have a charge against you. Similar to what we were looking at in Romans 9 this morning. I have an issue with you. God, you need to answer to me on my life and in my world. You need to deal with me on my terms. And Solomon knows there would be a temptation to go to the house of God and give God a lecture on what's wrong with this world, his world, and encourage him in whatever way we would to fix it and to register our complaint. 
And he says, yeah, but that's not a good idea. God's in heaven, you're on the earth. What does that mean? Psalm 115, but our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. The heavens are the heavens of the Lord and the earth he has given to the sons of men. What does that mean? He is sovereign over all, and he's given us this world, a broken world to live in. The verse does not question God's attribute of eminence, that he's, he's up there, and we're down here, and he's not close. It's just showing that heaven's view of our broken world and sinful lives is perfect, and our view is not. That's why he just told us to be more inclined to listen than to talk. I think the supreme act of arrogance is the assumption that we are in a position of control when dealing with God. We're going to let God know what he should do. I have to be careful, honestly, when I pray, that I don't give the answer to my prayers and my requests. You ever do that? As we pray, we're kind of, unless you haven't thought about this, Lord, let me tell you how you might want to answer this prayer. I think that's exactly what he's talking about here. Be submissive. Listen. Then verse 3 is an interesting uh, uh, verse, and you've got to be careful and, and not wrongly interpret it. He says, For the dream comes through much effort, and the voice of a fool through many words. Is this talking about you know, dreaming at night? No, because dreams at night come through no effort. <laughs> no one does much effort. You, you don't have much control over your dreaming, at least I don't. Dreams here are a metaphor for simple desires, aspirations. We use it the same way today. We say sometimes he has big dreams. It's the same idea. The big dreams, your ideas come through much effort. We plan our life out to the T. And he says, dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. In other words, we have life figured out and we're going to tell God how he should execute our plans. Job 20, verse 8, he flies away like a dream and they cannot find him. Even like a vision of the night, he's chased away. This is talking about people who just, they're just, they start this, they start that, they start this, they start the other, and they never finish anything because it's just aspirations. Comes through much effort. You just kind of plan your life away without consulting God. By the way, down in verse 7, dreams will be said to be vanity or hebel, that steam off a cup of coffee as well. We'll come back to that in a moment. In biblical literature, the pleasures of the wicked are usually likened to a dream. These dreams probably refer to the deals that a fool tries to make with God. Now we're getting closer to an interpretation. It means to have these aspirations and these dreams where we come and we bargain with God to get what we want. You ever resort to bargaining with God? God, if you will, then I might. God, if you'll get me out of this, then I. God, if you will, it's the if then. If you will, then I will. That's, that's not a wise way to pray. It's not a wise way to deal with God. If you'll just get me out of this, then I will do this or that. If you'll do this for me, if you'll give this to me. I remember being a... <clears throat> A young Christian, and I had my first job. My first job was at Taco Hut. I only worked there for a few weeks because Taco Hut went out of business when Taco Bell bought them out. And then I went and worked at McDonald's, which was across the street. But I remember going to this first interview, and I was, I mean, this was a fast food, and I'm 16, and, I, and I'm, 
I wanted a job. I, I, I needed some money. I, was, I wanted to have a, a car and gas. You, basically, when you're 16, you work to get money to have something to drive to work. That's kind of what you do when you're 16. Well, I remember distinctly, this is so bad. This was such bad theology. I had this interview, and I thought it went okay, and I went home and I prayed, and I remember, I remember being, this is what I did. I said, God, if you will give me this job, I promise you I will do more than tithe. I got the job. A few months later, I remember our, our pastor preaching on giving and realized that I had not fulfilled my end of the bargain. And I was still alive. I still had a job. I was prospering. I had made assistant, 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 assistant manager or something like that. God was so gracious. But what kind of deal was that? We're going to learn in a minute about that kind of vow and how dangerous that is. That's exactly what he's talking about here, which is why he goes into this fourth issue in approaching God. Contemplate a careful commitment. Be careful when you commit things. Contemplate a careful, a careful commitment. When you make a vow to God, ah, now I know what he's talking about. Listen, don't make these vows. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it. For he takes no delight in fools. Pay what? You vow. In the context here, these proverbial statements mean that a fool seeks to advance himself before God with great vows and great promises. Typically, if you will do this, this is making vows to God to get out of God what we want. It's, it's making deals with God. Deuteronomy 23, when you, uh, verse 21, when you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for it would be sin to you. And the Lord your God will surely require it of you. However, if you refrain from vowing, it would not be sin in you. You shall be careful to perform what goes out from your lips. Just as you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised. And you know what he's saying? Same thing Solomon's saying. Verse 5. It's better that you should not vow then they should vow not pay. Is that clear enough? It's better that you should not make a promise to God than that you make the promise and then don't fulfill your promise. Now, what are we talking about here? Can I give you some categories of vows? And I think these are vows that are taken before God, sometimes literally, and vows that we make that are taken before God spiritually. Wedding vows. We promised before God and witnesses to love our spouse for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish as long as we both shall live. You made a vow. How are you doing on that? I didn't ask if you still have a roommate who shares your last name. Have you promised, have you fulfilled the promise to love and cherish your spouse. This could easily turn into a, a marriage seminar, couldn't it? 
I made promises to Kim. Am I fulfilling them? The answer to that is sometimes better than other times and sometimes worse than other times. Debt. I think when you get that credit card, when you sign up for a mortgage, when you, when you take on debt, you, you've made a vow that God notices. Words. Boy, words matter. Words matter a lot. It's better to say nothing than to commit yourself to something that you don't fulfill. This does not mean that you should not make commitments to God. It does mean that these commitments better be thought through and followed through thoroughly. For example, Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5 made a vow to sell land and give, it, give the proceeds to God. And they did give some of the proceeds to God, right? But they made a vow and they didn't keep it and they were killed on the spot. I would beg you, don't attempt to bribe God with a vow. Don't make deals with God. Someone has said it this way. Prayer is not a cosmic flea market. It's a good word. Don't haggle with God. If you'll do this, I'll do that. Verse 6, do not let your speech cause you to sin and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Our tongues get us into more trouble with God than any other part of our being. James 3, 6 calls our tongues the very world of iniquity. And connection, the connection of verse 6 is that our mouths, it's our mouths that give utterance to these rash commitments and vows that come out of our heart. What does it mean here to tell the messenger of God? Well, I take that as someone in spiritual leadership. Uh, that you, you didn't really mean what you committed to incur God's anger. In other words, get me out of this. I, I know I said this to God, but, but I didn't really mean it, so help me renegotiate a better term with God. I know what this is like as a pastor. It is not any fun to hold people to a commitment that they made when they were serious about the commitment but are no longer serious about that commitment. I've been almost hit asking people, asking one man I can remember sitting in my office who was so angry with me, he stood up and came across his desk with his pointed finger about to take me out, and he could have too. When I asked him about a commitment he had made to God and to me about an issue in his life of purity with a young lady, and when I asked him to come clean on how that was going, he was incensed. I think that's something with what's going on here. The messenger of God is just someone who represents God in your life who indeed will give you pastoral oversight. This was not the high priest. He was inaccessible probably to most people who were coming in the temple. This was someone, a messenger of God. It's really indescript. Anyone who represents God's authority in your life to hold us accountable to the vows and the commitments we make to God. Boy, don't forget Psalm 15, 4. A man of integrity, a man who God accepts, swears to his own hurt and does not change. In other words, we're a man or a woman of our words. We're careful with our commitments. Let me just beg you, be careful with your commitments. Be careful when you're praying. God takes those seriously. 
And number five, respond with a holy awe, a holy fear. For in many aspirations or many dreams and in many words, there is, here's our word again, vanity, it literally, uh, havel, it's, it's just emptiness. But there's an instead. Rather, or instead, here's the alternative. Fear God. Fear God. Our vows, our dreams, our aspirations are all empty if we don't fulfill the commitments to honor God in them. He gives the same conclusion. I won't take the time to read this. Actually, I will. Chapter 3, verse 14. You have to take it. I want you to see this. I know that everything God does will remain forever, and there's nothing to add to it. There's nothing to take from it, for God has so worked, He so worked that men should fear Him. Is that clear? Look at chapter 7, verse 18. I love to hear pages of the Bible turn. It is good that you grasp one thing and also not let go of the other, for the one who fears God comes forth with both of them. We'll explain what, uh, what that means when we get there. Just know that it's about having the fear of God as the anchor of your life. Chapter 8, verse 11. This is such an important principle. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, they're not judged on the spot, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know it will be well for those who fear God, who fear Him openly. But it will not be well for the evil man and he will not lengthen his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. And then you know how the book ends in chapter 12, verse 13. The conclusion when all has been heard is this. Fear God. Fear God. And keep his commandments. Proverbs 1.7, you know it well. You probably have it memorized. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. All of us need a good, healthy dose of the fear of the Lord. How do you become one who understands the fear of the Lord? I'm going to tell you, I've seen so much ink spilt and so many trees killed trying to understand what the fear of the Lord is. And it's, it's not that complicated. You know what fearing God means? It means to be afraid of God. And you say, well, how can we? He's our friend. He's our, yeah, yeah, he is. But the fear doesn't go away because we understand that God is the ultimate threat in the universe. And though he's our friend, we still have a healthy reverence and fear for him because, of him because we understand what he's capable of. He's not the man upstairs He's not our buddy in the sky. He is someone we need to be reverential toward and respond in fear. The God who's presented in the Bible breathes this kind of fear. You will never, ever know the fear of God until you understand. You you, you have to see this. Proverbs chapter 9. Please, would you make this a... Maybe your family verse for the week, the month, the year. Proverbs 9.10. It's easy to remember. 9.10. 
The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Okay, how do I get that? And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. There it is. People who don't understand what it means to fear God are just announcing they don't understand God. People who say, I can't figure out what it means to fear God are people who are not pursuing the knowledge of God because the knowledge of God will give you a healthy awe and understanding and reverence and a holy fear that is balanced by his friendship and his love and his grace and mercy. It's only found in the knowledge of the holy. A.W. Tozer's book comes right out of that text. The knowledge of the holy one. Do we fear God? If we don't, the problem is with our knowledge of God. So how do we come to church? How do we come to meet with God? Remember the story in Luke 18? Pharisee comes in. He's praying. He says, <laughs> actually Luke 18 verse 11 says, the Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself. <laughs> Tells you everything you need to know right there. God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I paid my tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was, uneven, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his chest and saying, Oh, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went home justified and not the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Solomon says, watch your step in the house of God. Be careful, be cautious, be deliberate. Let's make it simple. We live in a broken world with injustice, crime, war, abortion, euthanasia, genetic engineering, we're on the verge of cloning. We have divorce, war, a world that will someday build a coffin for you and me. Think about that. There will be a coffin built, an urn, however, built for you and for me. How can we survive? Well, just as there are blue skies above the storm, there's a God above this world. There's a perspective we get when we come together in God's truth under God's word, with God's people, that gives us perspective. Asaph said, I was in despair until I came to the house of God, and then I understood. Then my perspective was altered. The current trend in evangelicalism is to change the church and to make it more palatable to the world. Let's make this, this church a harbor away from the world, an island in a rough sea. Solomon's counsel is just the opposite. Instead of changing the church to make the people feel more comfortable, it's the people who need to change to make God more honored. I was standing outside a lunchroom in high school, <clears throat> and I heard an opinion that I still marvel at. There was a girl who was an acquaintance of mine. She was telling me that there was a lot more to Jesus than that what was reported in the Bible. It was interesting. 
Now, she's right, of course. There's a lot more about Jesus than we have recorded in God's Word, but God has recorded the things that we need to know. But her deduction about Jesus of Nazareth kind of shook me. She said, you know that Jesus had many girlfriends and was even married. She could tell by my face I didn't believe her, so she explained, yeah, he probably married Mary Magdalene. He even had children. Now, that's not new speculation that comes out of the Gnostic heresies and the Gospel of Thomas that came centuries after Christ. It was a Gnostic myth. No credible reference is ever made to substantiate such a claim. But the idea that Jesus had a mistress or a wife kept being popularized. It was popularized ultimately in Jesus Christ's superstar in the last temptation of Christ. But what does the Bible record? Does the Bible record that Jesus was married? Be careful how you answer. Because it does. It absolutely does. Doesn't it, right? The church is the bride of Christ. Revelation 19, 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb and his bride has come to make herself ready. Revelation 21, 9, the one of the, the, uh, the, one of the seven angels who had seven bulls and seven last plagues came and spoke to me saying, come here, I will show you the bride, the wife, the wife of the Lamb, the wife of Jesus. And the wife is, drumroll, us. It's the church we're his bride. Are we coming to church to meet with our everlasting groom who will bring us into such a relationship with him in the future that it can only be described in terms like consummation and weddings? That's who we come to be with. He's our great Lord and Savior. Let's be ready when we come to meet with him because we are his beloved. Father, now give us perspective on how to make adjustments that we need and to repent in a way that would bring you pleasure. Thank you for this church, for our church. So grateful. So grateful for this church full of people who love the Lord Jesus, who honor him and encourage me all the more to love and good deeds. Make us more faithful for your great glory and our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.